people are struggling with in the real world today will go to the scriptures and seek the Lord's answer for them. All four of these questions share a few things in common. They're very tender questions and delicate questions. They tend to be asked by people whose hearts are tender and who have been wounded. And so I need you guys to pray for me. The Lord will give me tenderness as I seek to answer these questions. Uh, And we need God's wisdom on all of them. Uh, This week, we're going to ask the question, for those who have been hurt by God's people in the past and are asking, uh, why should I trust Jesus if his church has hurt me? Uh, Next week, we'll ask another really tender question, often asked by tender souls. That is, there are some who want to come to Jesus, but they know what the Bible says about same-sex marriage and same-sex attraction, uh, and they are attracted, men attracted to men, women attracted to women, and they're asking, well, if I come to Jesus, what is he going to call from me? What is the cost? Jesus says, count the cost, and we'll look at what Jesus would call from you if you're in that situation. Week after that, we'll talk about uh, Christians. There are so many Christians in the world today who feel like they are failing Jesus because they keep falling into one sin over and over again. So we'll ask the question, if I keep failing Jesus like this, am I really a believer? And then the Sunday before Thanksgiving, intentionally timed, some of you have a little extra money in your pockets. And sometimes we can feel guilty. I have extra and other people have nothing. Should I feel bad about that? Should I feel guilty about that? Uh, All tender questions, you see. And the Lord has good and tender answers to all of them. So again, pray that the Lord would give me tenderness as we walk through them. Uh, They are all questions that real people in our church wrestle with and real people in our neighborhoods wrestle with. And we ask the Lord to help us as we look at them. Then God willing, in Christmas time, we'll go back to the book of Isaiah for a series in Christmas. And then after that, over to 1 Corinthians together, back in text-by-text preaching after that. So as we think today about someone who might ask, if the Lord's church has hurt me, why why should I trust him? Uh, Some people have real and heartbreaking stories that lead them to ask that. Uh, Most pastors have kids, and some pastors' kids like mine grow up in a really healthy church environment where people love them. Others' pastors' kids grow up amongst great criticism. They can never do well enough, and folks are always jabbing at them watching people mistreat their father and then manipulate them to try to influence their father. And then they grow up and they say, if that is his church, I don't want anything to do with him. Right? Uh, or someone else may tell a story that goes something like, uh, you know, things were going great in my church. The church was growing. And then I overheard in his office our senior pastor Uh, just berating the associate pastor. I mean, with language and you would not believe. And so the next day I sat down with him and I confronted him and I said, I heard that and and the Lord calls you to repent of that. So I I obeyed Jesus' instructions in the verse of Matthew. I went to my brother, I showed him his sin and he went to the church council, framed me as rebellious and non-submissive and had me and my family excommunicated from the church because I confronted his sin. Uh, Or someone else may tell a story that says, we were a young couple, we had just gotten married, we were fired up about missions, and the Lord called us overseas, and when we landed there, we were scared, and we were cut off from everybody, but we were excited, only then to be manipulated and abused by the leaders of our missions organization. And we came back two years later, heartbroken. Uh, We told our pastor what happened, and he said, well, you got two choices, You can either make up a better story and tell a lie, 
Or you can just not tell anybody what happened. Because we can't have these people thinking that missions is hard. Now, I hope those sound far-fetched to you. Uh, But the reality is, all of those are based on very true stories of people that I've read from and heard from. Uh, And there are many others besides. So this morning, if you're thinking, okay, this doesn't really speak to me, you may relate to some of it, but remember that there could be somebody right next to you who has walked through something just like this. And it always seems to land in a very similar place. I shouldn't say always, often lands in a very similar place. If this is what his church does, and this is what they've done to me, how can I trust Jesus with my wounded heart that his people have hurt so much? Well, My prayer is that as we look at these texts, Jesus will show you how good he is and that he will ignite your love and affections for him, that you can find joy and happiness and even healing in his presence. Because what can happen is any kind of traumatic event, especially mistreatment and abuse, uh, it just shatters our hearts in, in many ways. It can distort your picture of what God is like And it can also turn you against the very things that would bring healing to you. And I'd love to see the Lord heal both of those this morning. Uh, We'll deal with the first one first, and then we'll save the second one for later. Uh, being, Being mistreated in the church can shatter your heart because it can give you this false picture of what God is like. In the same way that your father was meant to be a picture of your heavenly father to you. And if he was good to you, in many ways, he probably pictured your heavenly father to you. But if your father was not a good man, uh, it will take the words of the scriptures to repair that picture and show you uh, our heavenly father is not quick to anger. Our heavenly father is a good provider, but it'll take a little recovery to get there from the truth of the word. If you're a wife, your husband should be a picture to you of Christ's love for the church. But if he's not a good man, it will take truth from the scriptures to show Christ loves his church sacrificially. He is not demanding or demeaning of her. And in the same way, our pastors in the church, our shepherds, are supposed to be a picture of what the under-shepherd is like. But when they are not, it takes truth from the scripture to rebuild our picture of God in our hearts and say, okay, this shepherd is gentle. This shepherd is kind. The Lord is, is a good shepherd. And so I'm praying through this first part here, he will just repair that picture of what he is like. If we were to ask, what is Jesus really like when you come to him? The best answer I can find in the scriptures, we actually read already once this morning, and we'll look at again here. It's Matthew 11, 28 to 30. Many places we get to see Jesus act in the scriptures. Rarely do we see what his heart is like. But here, he just peels back the onion. Here's what I'm like on the inside. Matthew eleven twenty-eight 28 says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. And you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So here are the words of one who calls everyone to come to him. And to be clear, he is calling everyone to come to him, to follow him. 
right? He says, he says, take my yoke upon you. That means where I go, you go. And the, the way I go there, you go that way. And, and where I direct you, you go that direction. So he is saying, come and follow me. Even words that are harder to hear in our culture, come, come and submit to me, come and obey me. He is calling us to come and follow him. But unlike anyone else that we have ever followed in our lives, he is fully and completely worthy of that. So he's calling you to come and follow him. He's not saying you get to be in charge, you can do it your way. He's saying, come and follow me. But he is saying, because my heart is, is gentle and because I am willing to receive so much less than I deserve, uh, because I care for the lowliest of people, he's showing us what a, what a good God and what a good Lord he is. He's calling us to come and obey him, but he's saying that he is worthy of it. I am gentle and lowly in heart, he says. And he shows himself to be this way throughout all of the scriptures. Uh, some of us know what it's like to have a leader who just doesn't care for the downtrodden and the suffering, right? Only cares for those who are up on the top. Jesus shows himself all through the scriptures to be the exact opposite of that, the one who reaches to the person who is suffering the most and blesses them. There are stories like this all throughout the Old Testament. One we visited recently is the story of, of Hagar in the book of Genesis, who actually is downtrodden and mistreated by God's people. It's Abraham and Sarah who force her into this slave-wife relationship that she has and then eventually just leave her abandoned in the wilderness. There she is with her and her son, starving and thirsty to death and ready to die. And the Lord appears and saves both their lives and takes them to Egypt. And she becomes a great woman in Egypt, head of house, great enough to find a wife for her son herself. And she names that place where the Lord appeared to her which means you are the God of seeing, because God, God saw her when no one else did. Similarly, a woman named Hannah, who is unable to conceive a child, her husband has taken a second wife because of this. She lays it before the Lord after she's been taunted by the other wife, and her husband is just kind of aloof and inconsiderate of her. She's praying, God, would you hear my prayer? Would you give me a child and take my reproach from me? And the priest in the temple thinks that she's drunk. So she's just been let down by everybody, even the people in the temple. And the Lord hears her prayer and she names the boy Samuel, which means God hears, because God, God reached to her and he heard her. And this God comes to earth and he walks the earth as, as Jesus Christ, the man, and he looks out for the blind and heals them and he, and he sees the crippled and he heals them and everyone, he just looks out for those who have no one to look out for them. He is not one who only cares for the upper echelon in society. He's the one that everybody asks, why is he eating with tax collectors and sinners, right? Because he loves all of us. He's lowly in heart. He's gentle in heart like that. He also does not treat people who have sinned with impatience. Maybe you've had a leader who just kind of flipped out as soon as he did one little thing wrong. Well, consider Jesus, gentle and lowly in heart, who meets with a Samaritan woman by a well 
and correctly confronts her sin. You have had five husbands, and the man you have right now is not your husband. He knows what she has done, but deals with her so gently that she runs and tells her friends, come and see this man, right? Or Jesus, gentle and lowly, who has an adulteress brought before him, and the Pharisees are ready to stone her, and he says, Will you who are without sin cast the first stone against her? And they, the older leave first and then the younger leave and she is left alone. And Jesus says, where did your accusers go? And she says, they're gone. And he says, well, neither do I condemn you. Go and, and sin no more. See how different he is from the impatient, ready to flip his lid leader. No, he's not like this. He's gentle and lowly in heart. He isn't demanding He doesn't manipulate to get his way. He is a good shepherd, and he calls you to him. What he has done for us is he's come to earth, and he's lived in perfection without sinning against God once, and then chosen willingly to die a criminal's death and suffer God's wrath against sin, even though he never sinned himself, and then He rose from the dead and is exalted in the heavens right now. And he's done this to offer payment for sin for anyone who would come to him and guarantee eternal life for anyone who would come to him. So this gentle one, this lowly one who has come to earth and suffered so much more than he deserved when he deserved all the worship of heaven, he says, come come to me. I've paid for sins. I guarantee life eternally to all who would follow me. And he simply says, come if you're a laboring and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. So my call to you then is, is go to him, come to him, and find in him rest for your soul. So there's the first thing we want to learn about him to repair our picture of him if you have had bad leaders, especially in the church. He is gentle, he is lowly in heart, that is who he is. That may be somewhat satisfying, but you may be asking, okay, but what about what happened to me? All right, there's, there's still tension in the heart over that. Why did the Lord allow that? Did, does he care about what happened to me? And that brings us to the second point here. The truth is, Jesus hates hypocrisy in leadership more than you do. This is something we re- revisit from time to time. Because we would think that God is like us, remembering sin for a little while and then overlooking it and forgetting about it, right? Because our memory doesn't even work and we don't even care after a while we get overwhelmed. No, he cares more than we do. And we see this in Matthew 23 and many, many other places, but we're just going to look at one. Now, I said earlier, he is slow to anger, right? He does, he does burn against sin, especially when people are mistreated, uh, but, but he's slow to get there. And after three years of working with religious leaders who were oppressing the poor, uh, who were working against him, who were lying and slandering his name and trying to get him put to death, after three years of tolerating them, calling them out in this escalating tension, finally in Matthew chapter 23, he spends a whole chapter denouncing their hypocrisy. Uh, We call this chapter the seven woes to the scribes and Pharisees. Seven times he says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. I'll read to you just two of the seven so you get some picture of how he feels about hypocrisy and leadership in the church. He says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, 
For you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they're full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee. First clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside may be clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. For you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanliness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. One of the hard realities of life here is that if you drive by a church on the road that's full of hypocrisy and lawlessness, you don't really have any way of knowing, do you? Right? The walls look the same from the outside. And if there's a celebrity teacher on YouTube who is holy and righteous and another one who is full of hypocrisy and lawlessness, you can't tell through YouTube, can you? But the Lord sees the heart and he cares. And he says words like this to those who present a holy and righteous facade, but on the inside are like a rotting tomb in the heart. This is a word of comfort for those who have suffered under that kind of leadership before. Because you're going to ask, does God care? Does God know what happened? And it just burns sometimes that this person is going on pretending to be righteous and everyone is believing it. Well, Take heart, there is one who does not believe it. There is one who sees through the facade. And he burns with more anger about it than you burn about it. The truth is, God knows what really happened better than you do. He remembers what really happened in more vivid detail than you do. He cares about it more than you do. He has more power to bring justice than you do. And he will handle that anger and that power to bring justice more righteously than you would handle it if you were in the same place. So he is good and worthy of trusting with whatever it was that happened. This is why the scriptures say things like, Beloved, never avenge yourselves. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. We can trust him to repay because he will do it better than we would do it. He would do it more righteously than we would do it. This is why when there is no way to hold the person accountable for what they're doing, and sometimes there is no way, Someone like David, before he was king, was willing to say of King Saul, who hunted him, I will not stretch out my hand against the Lord's anointed. He had no legal anointed way that he could really fight back against King Saul. Saul held the sword, he was the king, he was God's anointed, and there's just nothing David could do about it. And so David says, I won't stretch out my hand against him. Because he knows that the Lord has a way of dealing with men like Saul. Now, in your situation, there may be good, legal, God-ordained ways that you can act. Maybe, maybe it's a situation where you can call the police or where you can report someone to other pastors and elders. Different systems work differently, but sometimes there's, there's no way. And what do you do when you've run every course and it just looks like they're going to get away with it? 
Well, then you can say like David, well, vengeance is the Lord's and he will repay. The Lord has a way of taking care of men like Saul. And Saul did get what was coming to him in this life. So what you must do then if you're in that kind of a situation is wait for the Lord's vengeance. Again, if he's given you a way that you can do something that is right, then do it. If you've got to call the police, call the police. Whoever you've got to call, do it. But if there's no way, trust the Lord. He will take care of it. In the meantime, take the pain to the Lord. There are psalms like Psalm 55 written for that specific purpose. Uh, Take it to the Lord and let him deal with it. Vengeance is mine, he says. So there's a somewhat repaired picture of what he's like. Is he harsh, demeaning, uh, impatient? Do I need to be afraid of him in the same way that I've been afraid of other leaders? No, he's gentle and he's humble. Is he permissive such that I know he will never act and didn't care what happened to me? No, he cares more than we care. Now you'll find healing as that picture of him gets repaired. Uh, But there's another way that things like this shatter our hearts. Being mistreated, being abused, any kind of trauma tends to make us run from the very things that would heal us. Uh, Doctors out in the world will say this. If you've been in... um, say a terrible car accident and uh, you know traumatizingly bad car accident Uh, there is something about it that will drive you away from friendships and those who would care for you when that's exactly what you need in order to heal Uh, in the same way the same thing happens when we are mistreated by each other we become less trusting and we're driven away from the very things we need to heal And so for the second half of this, I want to focus on just repairing that brokenness that is in so many of our hearts. So here's the third point then. You need to be restored to God for your heart to heal. The heart cannot heal outside of a relationship with its maker. This is because you were made by God to be in a relationship with God first man and the first woman walked freely with God in the garden and were only banished out because we rebelled and sinned against him. And the happiest people in the scriptures are not the ones who have the best lot in life. They're the ones that walk the most closely with God. This is where our heart was made to be. And we cannot heal from brokenness in our hearts if we are not back under the Lord's hand. There's a picture of this in Psalm 16, and I want to read it with you. This is written by a man who is suffering greatly, who has been mistreated by others, but he's a happy man. He says some things that would be surprising for what he's been through. He says, I'll start in verse 5, the Lord is my chosen portion in my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. Isn't that a thing to say when you've been through suffering and sorrow? I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Do you see the security there in being close with me? He's at your right hand, so you're not shaken. Therefore my heart is glad, and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. Again, healing in heart, joy in heart, security in heart, because he's close to God. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol. Let your Holy One see corruption. No, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence, 
there's fullness of joy. In your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Right? Like what profound words from someone who has been mistreated and is suffering as the man who wrote those words. So what's going on here is if you were made to be in fellowship with the Lord, the only place your heart can begin to heal is in fellowship with the Lord. Trying to thrive or heal as a person outside of a relationship with your maker, like while running from God, is like trying to grow grass in a dark closet. It just doesn't have the life-giving force that it needs to thrive. It's like trying to grow a corn plant in a dark closet. It doesn't have the sun shining on it or the rain falling on it like it needs to grow and thrive. And your heart is the same way, although you do need a little sunshine every now and then. You need to walk with the Lord and bask in his light in order to thrive and in order to grow. The way this tends to work, now people have overpromised this, and you may have heard that. You may hear people say just, far-fetched things like if you if you want to be cured of depression come to Jesus and he'll cure you of depression instantly no it doesn't work like that but when you come to Jesus you're restored to the Lord you're under his good hand again and resting in the shadow of his right hand Uh, what happens is the spirit of God fills your heart He, he enters you and begins renewing you in every way so he renews your mind and you begin to forsake some of the false things you've believed along the way that have brought harm to you and and believe truth you know bit by bit he kind of corrects all the things you believe and as you believe more truth I mean lies hurt they're harmful to the heart Uh, some of those knots get untied in the heart and there's just refreshment oh this is what the Lord is really like oh that's so much better right and then he renews our hearts to not long for the wrong things but to long for the right things and so there's a little more peace in the heart even as we're still battling sin and he renews the level of of our emotions so the things that he tells us not to feel like like bitterness uh, things that are you know not only does he tell you not to feel them but they're just not good for you to feel them we we begin to feel them less and, and we push them away and then that renewed heart believing renewed truth feeling and more holy feelings and desiring more holy things you begin to do things that are good and righteous and not things that are sinful and self-destructive and over time being restored like that many people find healing for their hearts so much of our mental health crises in the world are rooted in, in real wounds in the heart And you can take drugs to help, but it's like, you know, taking Tylenol for pain. It it might numb things. It might make things a little better on the surface. But if you don't deal with the heart problem, the real problem, then it's not going to fully get better. What the Lord can do is repair the heart and begin to address the wound in time. That means you can expect and hope for some gradual healing over time. And then... When the Lord returns and you see Jesus face to face and the words, the dwelling place of God is now with man are spoken, you're literally in the presence of God forever. There in in a renewed immortal body, you'll find full healing and full comfort. 
And that's part of why it says he will wipe away every tear. He'll wipe away some of those tears now. He will wipe away all of those tears when he comes back. None of that comes, though, if you run from God. Right? You have to run to him. So, so my call is run, run to him. Find the presence of the Spirit now in your heart and find the fullness of joy in his presence when he returns. Can you see, though, how experiencing something terrible like that can turn you against him? It makes you run from the very thing that you need to run to. There's another way we do the same thing, right? If, if a church hurts you, well, I can see the logic. Church hurt me, so church equals bad, and therefore I run from church, right? Church is bad. I'm not going to go there. And so yet another way we're running from the very thing we need to run to to heal. If, if you have been wounded by an unhealthy church, the place to heal is not no church. The place to heal is a healthy church. So the last point I have for you today is you, you need a healthy church to heal. If you flip the page to page 10 in our handouts, we get a text for that too. Many places this is spoken in the Bible, it's hard to pick one, but 2 Corinthians 1 says it very clearly. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. See the logic of how that works there. Uh, he comforts this person here and he comforts that person there so that then this person and that person in a loving community can then comfort the person who is hurting. He comforts us so we can comfort each other. That means if you need healing, if you need restoration, if you need comfort, the place to find it is a, is a healthy, biblical, Jesus-loving church. People who have been comforted by God so that they can stretch out their arms to comfort you. There's kind of a, a worldly mirror of this that is pretty effective. I'm not denouncing it as I tell you about it, but you're probably familiar with it. Uh, if you've been through some kind of trauma in the world, you know, a bad car accident, uh, an abusive relationship, uh, one of the things that therapists will recommend is, is a support group, right? Because it's, it brings healing to be in a room with 10 other people who have been through what you have been through. And they tell their story, and then the next guy tells his story, and you tell your story, and it, there's like a, oh, you too, right? We have a bond now, and in that fellowship, you can find some healing from terrible things. In fact, most therapists will say that the best protection against letting that stress and pain overwhelm you is a good support network. Well, that's all good and can be very helpful, but let me tell you what's missing, uh, the Lord has actually already designed a support network of people who have been through the same thing you have been through, only with a, a much bigger problem. Now, to see that, we have to see that there is a bigger problem out there than what someone else did to you. The biggest problem we have, all of us, is that we have sinned against a holy God who remembers everything, Right? and who is just and will come in justice. There is a big problem. Now, if you can find forgiveness for your sin and say, Jesus died and paid the debt of my sin, 
And then he rose from the dead to guarantee me life forever. What he does then is he brings you into the arms of his church so that we can all look around and tell our story of our great problem, our sin against God and our need for forgiveness, and the solution we have found, the blood of Jesus covering our sin and his resurrection giving us hope of life. And then the person next to you tells the story of how they found the same thing, and you say, oh, you too, right? Jesus saved you also. And then the next person, Jesus saved them also, right? And so we have then a bond that the world can't have. We have all been forgiven of our sins by the blood of Jesus and have eternal life that we don't deserve to look forward to. And when we wrap ourselves in the arm of a community that says, yes, me too, I have been forgiven too. Yes, me too, I have been forgiven too. And one man says, I am 75 and I have been forgiven of my sins. And one child says, I am 11 years old and I have been forgiven of my sins. And people from all different walks of life all come together and say, I have been forgiven of my sins. There is a community in which you will find healing. There are people who have been changed. So the best place then to find healing if you've been hurt or harmed by an unhealthy church isn't no church. It's, it's a healthy church. Other things work this way too. If we were to imagine tragically a, a child in a very broken home, a home so broken and dysfunctional that the, the authorities have to come in and remove the child from the home and say, this child has been scarred from this home. These parents cannot have this child. This is a bad situation. The place for that child to heal is not no family. No, the place for that child to heal is is a healthy family. Or if you work a job at just a dysfunctional workplace, like so bad that like you need counseling and you have scars from how bad this workplace is, the place to heal from that and recover is not to have no job ever again. No, it's to go work for a healthy company. Uh, If you are living in a, a home that is broken down, the roof falls apart, the windows are broken, it cannot be lived in anymore. The place to go from that is not no home, the place to go is a sound, solid home. And in the same way, if you were once part of a very unhealthy church that hurt and harmed you, the place to recover from that is not no church at all on your own. No, it's it's a healthy church, there you will find healing. So the two things I'd encourage you to do then, I think the scripture compels you to do, one, find a healthy church, and two, find wise friends that you can talk about with what happened to you. How do you find a healthy church? Well, it's tough because everybody knows how to put on a show, right? Some things I'll tell you to look for though. Uh, when, When the preachers preach, what's their view of the word of God? Uh, do they preach as if they are they're under this book and they submit to its authority? Uh, does the preacher seem to sense that there is life and goodness in these words? And is he scraping by and getting by surely on the goodness of this word? Or is it on rhetoric, showmanship, uh, showbiz, media, those kind of things? Uh, where does this preacher place himself in regard to the word? That will tell you a lot about the direction that the church is going, because churches tend to follow their leaders. 
Watch the way the leaders and the people in the church interact. Uh, Do the leaders seem to care individually for the people? Do the people seem to have a healthy respect for their leaders? Or are they are they scared of their leaders? Big difference. Which one do you see in the hallways in the church? And a church in good leadership over time, uh, not only will they rejoice in the gospel together, but the people will they will love each other. And you'll be able to see that when they gather in the sanctuary. Uh, one of my favorite things about our church is usually before the service, I'm bouncing around talking to people. But every once in a while, I get to just sit in a pew and about three minutes before the service starts, just close my eyes and just listen to you guys chatter. Um, and it's like the most holy sound in the world because here's the people that have been looking forward to seeing each other all week. And you can just hear the tone of, ah, oh, it's you again. Oh, and then there, oh, there's that excitement in the air. Listen in a church. Is there that kind of spirit among these people? Do they care about each other? Do they love each other? Are they delighted in each other? And when I say love each other, I don't just mean are they willing to sacrifice and do kind things for each other. They should do that. But do they delight in each other? If you could find that, you've found a brotherhood and a sisterhood, a healthy and thriving community. Find a church like that. Embrace it for all of its flaws and just dive in. The other part of it, you need wise friends to talk to about this stuff, right? Like people you know well enough that you're like, okay, I can trust this person. And particularly, I can tell them like what happened to me. Like I can tell them that scary part of the story. I don't want to tell anybody. You can't do that with anybody, but you find a wise, trustworthy friend and you can do that. The Proverbs say uh, the sweetness of a friend is in his earnest counsel, like those high stakes conversations where they give you a good word and they listen to you. That's, that's some of the good stuff of having a good friend. You need that because what we might call toxic church environments and, and cruel leaders, they will leave you confused. Um, some, some manipulative people confuse you intentionally. Right? And then you're walking around like, what happened? Right? And you need a friend who's wise, who you can trust, who you can just say, okay, here's everything that happened. Am I crazy? And a friend that will say, no, like you're not crazy, right? Or, you know, a little bit off here, but here, like this, this is right. Like just to, to clear up that confusion over what on earth was that? Nothing helps like a good friend that you can trust and reveal these things to. So find a healthy church, get involved, and find trustworthy friends that you can talk to about these things. The Lord is good, and he gives good things to his people. So there's as robust an answer in the time we have as I can give. If, if you've been hurt by a church in the past, I pray it was never our church, uh, can you trust Jesus? Uh, I think if there's one thing I wanted you to know about Jesus, if that's you, is that if you would come to Jesus, you don't need to be afraid of him. A lot of people are used to being afraid of leaders, used to being afraid of a husband, afraid of a father. Uh, Now, if you're going to run from him and continue to rebel against him, you have good reason to be afraid of him. But if you will run to him, you'll find what the scriptures call the the fear of the Lord, which is a glad-hearted, trembling in reverence and joy before him. Because this all-powerful God that you are running to is also good. 
and also loves his people and gave his life for them. And what better joy can you have than coming to him? So friend, I urge you, run to him, run to the arms of a healthy church and find healing. Let's pray together.